time has come to retool our playing for ourselves, for our students, and for the greater groove. And the big question remains, of course, what is the future of strings? Come on, let's talk about it. Tracy Silverman, your host of the For the Greater Groove podcast, The Future of Strings. And this is where we talk about progressive and non-classical string playing. In particular, how we can be supportive as rhythm players, groove meisters for other people, and do that supportive role that uh, strings um, can do so well. Uh, and that we don't teach to a lot of our classical friends. So that's what this is about. And there are a few people who have dedicated their careers more fully to being a rhythm string player than my guest, Miss Natalie Haas, who is one of the premier cellists in the non-classical world. She's been touring with Alistair Fraser, who's acknowledged as one of the great Scottish fiddlers of all time, and certainly one of the greatest Scottish fiddler educators of all time. She's been touring with him for over 20 years, has toured with Mark O'Connor as part of the Appalachia Waltz Trio. She's been on over 100 albums with some of the greats in the biz, like Natalie McMaster, and collabs with people like Daryl Anger and... Her sister, Brittany Haas, from Crooked Still. She's been an associate professor at Berkeley College of Music, a longtime teacher at Alistair Fraser's Valley of the Moon Scottish Fiddling School, and is now <laughs> living somewhere in northern Spain and enjoying the good life. <laughs> Natalie, <laughs> welcome. Great. Thank you so much, Tracy. It's great to be here. I've uh, become a fan of the podcast. Oh, good! Over the last <laughs> couple oh. of weeks and uh, got me through some really long drives. And uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's an honor. Thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate that you're here, having just flown back to Spain from the U.S. yesterday. Um, no doubt, completely jet lagged, and <laughs> found a time when our schedules could align. Um, and really appreciate your, your taking the time out for this because the listeners of this podcast definitely want to hear from you. You have really dedicated your life to doing exactly what this podcast is about, being that chordal supportive player. And we want to know how you do it. And I have, <laughs> <laughs> I have kind of two, two things that I'd like to talk about today in general. Okay. Um, if you don't mind. And they're really just kind of two questions, but they're big ones. Yeah. Um, like, first of all, how you learned how to do what you're doing. <laughs> and in particular, I'm really uh, interested in your relationship to classical music because mm. I failed to mention in that little intro, you are also a Juilliard graduate. As are you, right? I we am. share that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We've both kind of been through that classical, um, you know, pedagogy and yet have emerged uh, recovering still, in my case, uh, on the other side <laughs> and um, really doing something that they never taught us mm. at Juilliard. So, yeah, really curious about that and yeah. also how you teach, how you teach all this stuff to your students. Totally. Well, stromboying is, is a huge concept for me and in, in what I do. So I really am so grateful to you for having put it into words so well what, oh, what it you. is <laughs> what it is that we are trying to accomplish uh, as string players. And especially in, in Celtic music, I find that that word works perfectly uh, because it is so much based on strummed instruments, um, the kind of backing that, that I'm doing for yeah. underneath underneath fiddle tunes. So we'll get to that ed educational part later, though. Uh, let me yeah. answer your first question first. Thank you. Um, yeah, so uh, you mentioned Alistair. Um, I met him when I was very young. I, I think my first time at Valley of the Moon. Um, and as you said, he that he is really well known as a player, but also as an educator because of all of the the 
people that have gr grown up at that camp and are now full-time musicians and have been totally inspired and have had their life journey completely changed by that place. And I know he's not unique in that. There are other fiddle camps out there that have done that for other people. But, um, but that's the one in which I grew up. And uh, I was 11 when I first went. You know, little dorky Suzuki kid, had no idea what the heck I was getting myself into. I went along sort of as my sister's... Um, just, you know, tagging along, even though I was an older sister, uh, because she was the fiddle player in the family. Right, and right. Uh, and it's a fiddle camp. You know, what what the hell am I doing there? They were one of the first fiddle camps, I think, to offer cello classes there. So they're, that's pretty uh, cool and, and unique. And so my first year was 95. And uh, that was my first exposure to any kind of music other than classical, I think, um, on strings. And, uh, and Brittany had kind of started taking bluegrass fiddle lessons so she was just starting to delve into the fiddle world and I really had no idea um what was out there um in terms of the cello and uh and then I got there um you know having played Suzuki for a couple of years at that point um so at least the Suzuki thing was great for like setting up a, a good ear learning uh yeah. thing yeah. so I was I was better prepared than most classical musicians you know having come from Suzuki but uh yeah then just you know walked into this amazing place that um, totally uh, fostered a, a great love of, of traditional music. Not just the music itself, but like the scene surrounding it, you know, mm -hmm. all of yeah. finally meeting people my own age who were doing what I was, you know, who had shared similar interests, um, wanted to get out of, of their classical bubble and see what else was out there. And, uh, and just, you know, I think fiddle music has just this great inclusive quality to it. So, yes. um, and, and a lot of these camps really foster that kind of very close mentor relationships. you you have direct access to your heroes. Um, uh, you know, you're sitting in class with them and then you're jamming with them afterward and uh, eating lunch with them. And yeah. we're all, interacting all of the time and it's not like in the classical world where you have this really kind of yeah. hierarchical system of you know the, the teacher is is like god and, and you you can never um you know uh, have like a a a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with them yeah yeah you know <laughs> um anyway so yeah so so i started uh, going to that camp and there was a cello teacher there she's called abby newton she's awesome ha, you know kind of approaching Scottish music more from sort of the Baroque standpoint. And, and Scottish music is, is unique in that they have a cello, yes. his, historical cello tradition um, in the traditional music. And it's very well documented. It's written down. You can go and read bass lines from the 1800s that, um, you know, who knows if that's what people actually play. That's what the editor put in the book. But right. it was probably similar to what they were playing at the time, which was like kind of, you know, like figured bass kind of Baroque style um, right. vamping, uh, bowed bass, they called it, I think, um, you know, so it's just like quarter notes, repetitive, some octave jumps, some kind of, you know, jumping around to different parts of the triad, but pretty simple stuff. Mostly holding Not, down, mostly holding down the bass. Exactly. Exactly. And, yeah. and just With quick, a, quick question, if I may, is this, um, I know that, that the, uh, and you mentioned the cello, it was a part of the uh, Scottish tradition. Is it also true of uh, the Irish and English traditions, or is it really more unique to Scottish? Yeah, interesting you you would ask that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, around the, you know, 16th, 1700s, violins, and by extension cellos, were making their way, you know, out of continental Europe to, to the British Isles. And um, I don't think as many cellos made it to Ireland, Probably because of the cost. I mean, I think people were just the general, the, the poverty level is pretty high there. Um, and English music, you know, there there is an English music tradition, but it's it's a lot less strong than Irish and Scottish music. And it, yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the music in Northern England is probably similar to the, the music of the Scottish borders in a lot of ways, you right. know, but when we're talking about Celtic music, we're specifically talking about like Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England's kind of its own thing. It's very closely related and probably to the untrained ear, 
it's probably still sounds Celtic, but, um, right. you know, just Scottish and Irish music have these really strong folk traditions, um, which English music doesn't share as much. And I don't actually know historically um, in English music, I mean, there's some collections out there, but I don't think they really include bass lines. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's kind of unique to, to Scotland, um, which is cool. And I'm just going to throw in here that I, th- I find it really uh, cool and and uh, satisfying to, for, to my whole um approach to all of this with stromboing stuff that the connection between the baroque use of this stuff and the baroque roots of this mm. uh, and these folk dances that were used by Handel and Bach and and so many uh, of the great baroque composers are so closely tied to the folk tradition uh, and we have Absolutely. come kind of so far in some uh, into the virtuosic area of string playing with classical music but its roots we're really in, uh, especially for the lower range instruments like cello, in this supportive uh, dance world. Yeah, yeah, and and the the job of the bass player really was to provide the harmonic and rhythmic accompaniment. But there wasn't very much rhythmic about it. I mean, in terms of the kind of complex grooves that that we're looking at today with all, all of this drum bowing and stuff, we're, we're basing it on subdivisions that are much smaller, but they, they were really just holding down the big beats, like one, two, three, four. More like a, uh, like a you know. jazz bass, just basically Yeah, exactly, walking. like, yeah. exactly, exactly, but with the bow, yeah. yeah. Um, cool. And uh, yeah, which, which is great, and it actually serves its purpose very well for dance music. Like, you know, there's some things um, playing for dancing that you realize that like, you know, for the kind of dancing that, that in this folk world, um, if you're doing some really complex grooves, it might be really cool to listen to, but maybe not no. work so well to no. dance to, actually. Exactly. Um, so so you kind of have to know who your audience is, I guess. But uh, anyway, I, I was in Valley of the Moon. I was in these cello classes kind of learning how to do the bowed bass um, walking thing and, um, and was, you know, into it at first. But then... Uh, a few years down the line, um, I believe, and you, you might have even been at this event, I think Evan Price was getting married, um, and there were all of these people coming into the Bay Area for his wedding, um, including uh, Daryl and Rashad and I, I, maybe Matt Glazer, I can't remember, but all of these people just sort of descended on Valley of the Moon um, just to come in and, and see what was going on there as as overnight guests they came and... and um, and that was my first time meeting Daryl, and uh, I sat down next to him in a fiddle class, and he had this really <laughs> weird-shaped little tiny cello. It was like smaller than a cello body, but it had the shape of a bass. Um, and uh, so he was. <laughs> uh, this was probably like ninety-eight, maybe ninety-nine. Um, and uh, yeah, I had I saw him doing things that I had never seen anybody do before. And I was like, whoa, you can do that with a cello? <laughs> oh, yes, sign me up. Um, and Rashad was there. I got like a, a little lesson with Rashad and, um, you know, just figured out how to, because most of it, most of the time at that camp, I was learning from fiddle players. I was going to the cello classes, but I was also in the fiddle classes, learning the melodies. Um, and then I was really kind of, because there wasn't that much uh, of a, cello tradition uh, in modern times like I said it was like in the 1800s it was very prominent but um, in today's world um, or the you know at that point in time there were very few people using it and and nobody using it in the way that I saw Daryl and Rashad doing so I was like oh I wonder you know if, if I could make this stuff work and I was getting kind of inspired by listening to jam sessions at fiddle camps where there were you know, people were, were it was a, a cool environment, very liberal um, in that, you know, most, most Irish sessions like are just about melody playing. You, everybody plays the melody slightly differently, different bowings, different ornaments, but you're all just, it's such a strong melodic tradition. At Alistair's camp, he was really encouraging people to, to get out of that. And, you know, in a jam session where there are multiple fiddles, what one person can be holding down the melody and other people are trying other things. They're doing rhythmic stuff. They're doing chordal stuff. They're, they're finding counter melodies and harmonies and stuff. So yeah. I was kind of listening to the other part, the other fiddle part, and trying to figure out how to do that on the cello. Um, and that was kind of my way in as a, as a cellist who wanted to do more than just play the bass line. Um, 
Interesting. And then, and then Daryl showed up and I realized that, oh, not only can you just, you know, be a, like a second fiddle part, but you can also be the drummer and the bass player all in one. And the, so I got really uh, excited and, and motivated um, when I met Daryl and then uh, started figuring out how to, how to do the chop and how to incorporate that into Celtic music. Um, yeah, but and like I said, a lot of um, my inspiration were, were fiddle players um, and Rashad. Um, but then also, you know, because Celtic music in terms of accompaniment has a very strong guitar, piano accompaniment tradition, I was also like sitting down in sessions and trying to figure out what they were doing and how to, how to make that, you know, following the p piano player's left hand and then also following the strum patterns of yes. guitar players and trying to copy their accents and, and, and so it was a long process yeah, of kind yeah. of evolving this like accompaniment style for, for Celtic music, but, um, and drawing on a, a lot of a lot different of, sources of inspiration. Yeah, different instruments. And do you play guitar at all? Did you try nope. to play guitar? <laughs> nope. <laughs> I still feel like a total baby when it comes to pit stuff. I mean, there's so many great uh, cello players out there who have de developed these really, um, you know, advanced, uh, highly advanced pits techniques. Mark Summer and Eugene. And, uh, and they just have all this flu fluidity. And I, I, I feel like I, I, I can kind of play it like a bass now, but I, I can't, I, I don't do like really fancy strum patterns. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I, the I bow was, is my thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I was thinking more from a, um, from the perspective of understanding the chords and approaching right. music as a chordal player, you know, somebody who's going, okay, we're going from A to D to A to whatever, you know. Uh, and, and, you know, understanding structure through the uh, um, perspective of chords rather than mm. melody. Absolutely. Yeah. I and mean, that's something you have to train yourself to do as uh, I mean, I think maybe as cellists, we have a better in for yeah. that just because we are kind of um, yeah, do bass. play a lot of bass and, and orchestra parts and stuff. So you're kind of your ear gets a little bit uh, trained. To, to hear those changes, but um, yeah, no, definitely, absolutely trying to, part of the guitar and piano stuff, what was interesting to me is that these people had a much more highly developed sense of, of chordal uh, harmony than the fiddle players did. <laughs> so, no. I'm sorry. No, I it's... I didn't mean to give, give any offense to anybody. No, I say the same thing, and I, <laughs> and I know because I am one and suffered from, from that, you know, perspective that I've mentioned several times on this show, but I will briefly reference again of the idea of being sort of like sailors on the ocean and not having, thinking the ocean is this wonderful flat melody and having no idea what is going on beneath them and all the life in, you know, beneath the Absolutely. Surface. Yeah. And I think cellists are guilty of that too, coming from the classical world. Like, yes, we can hear bass lines, but we don't yeah. necessarily know how to articulate what that chord is or, um, or, you know, do anything other than the bass note and hear anything other than the bass note and the melody note. You have right. to train yourself to be able to hear inner voices and chord names and all of this. And, and Celtic music, you know, we're mostly dealing in diatonic stuff. So it's, um, it's not as highly evolved harmonically as, as jazz or whatever, but, um, uh, no, definitely sitting down next to, um, to people in, in jam sessions who were harmonically aware is I think how I sort of tried to, to, to like build that. on that and following yeah. the bass and kind of, yeah, you know, so probably took me a while to get out of just playing fifths all the time like that. Right. <laughs> you know, that that's a really easy way in on a, on an instrument that's tuned in fifths exactly. Um, to, to, exactly. to, to playing chords. Um, but you know, uh, yeah. So I had to work on, on getting other voicings and finding kind of richer, um, harmonic stuff, but yeah, as a, as a note, as an instrument that can only play two notes at once, um, that was why I think having this whole chordal world, um, didn't get opened up to me until I learned how to do strum bowing and, and chopping and stuff where you can divide, you know, um, into multiple parts of the chord. So you're not just hearing the bass note, you're hearing the middle voice as well. Um, and you're able to play that not simultaneously, but kind of imply it with all exact of these. Exactly. Yeah. This uh, <laughs> idea of implied harmony, that's such a big part of, <clears throat> you know, how jazz comping works where, you know, you can just, uh, you know, everybody talks about the thirds and sevenths, you know, you can, 
um, define a chord with very few actual chord tones. Um, mm. And I'm curious how you go about teaching that to young cellists uh, or old cellists um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, classical cellists who aren't accustomed to uh, thinking, to being harmonically uh, aware, as you say, um, mm. which is a great, a great term. Yeah, I think um, <laughs> I think people sometimes get really overwhelmed in my classes by the amount of, of theory stuff, because a lot of people that are coming to play folk music maybe have not had a lot of, of theoretical knowledge imparted to them from, you know, uh, they might have started as adults or, and they're just looking to get into it for the fun, but, right. and that, it is fun to play melodies. Um, but once you get into playing rhythm, um, you kind of can't get away without having <laughs> some theoretical knowledge. So I feel like I, sometimes I'm going over people's heads, but I'm trying to explain it in a way that, um, that makes sense. And I, I've, you know, um, most of the sort of, uh, teaching examples I think I have are melody players, you know, just teaching melodies. And that's, that's uh, one thing, you know, the call and response works great. Um, but then for trying to get people into, um, doing chord voicings basically and you can do it in a in a pretty simple way like folk music you know it's mostly one four and five like so so I, what I'll tell people to do is um, instead of thinking about voice leading um, like an easy way in uh, is just to like pick a hand position and like figure out one four and five in that hand position in all the the possibilities without doing any shifting. Brilliant. So like if you, yeah. if you take like the key of A major, let's figure out how to play one, four and five. And if you like impose a groove over it, that makes it way more fun. So people are hopefully more likely to absorb it that way rather than, you know, just this is one, this is four, this is five. And I'm just gonna stay on those two strings and then I'm gonna figure out all the different ways I could do that. This is one, and you can't really do it without shifting on the cello. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's kind of extended position, so it doesn't count as a shift. <laughs> but um, but yeah, you know that that's way less interesting than doing the same thing with a groove on it, like. Um, so you know, and then you could do the same thing on the A and D strings, like all in first position. So I, I would take people through different registers um, and different position hand positions um, and just you know two notes at a time then moving on to maybe three notes and four notes if you want to get fancier and have more of those uh, different voicings available like I said getting a bass voice and a, and a middle upper, voice yeah. Um, yeah upper lower um, so yeah I try to take people through just one four and five in like the basic fiddle keys um, that get used the most and, uh, and figuring out how to, how to get creative with your voicing so that you're not always going to be using fifths and, and right. doing too much jumping around because basically that's what good voice lady is, right? It's just um, right. not having too many big jumps for, on the ear. So, Do you talk yeah. about um, arpeggiating or broken, breaking chords uh, mm. or little scale patterns or things like that? Or is that because the cello involves so much shifting as soon as you start doing that does that kind of yeah. become a sort of a second level um yeah no i i do that actually in, in more with pits than um than with uh bowed stuff because so, so like those bowed patterns i would use them um like when most of my teaching is based on kind of different dance tune form types so you have like real uh, which is four four you have a jig which is six eight and then like um so those are fast moving things. You need to have kind of the, the strum bowing thing available um, to be able to hit all the subdivisions. But then, yeah, in terms of arpeggiating chords, like I would do that underneath like a, a waltz or, or like a slower piece, um, maybe a slower three. There's a lot of Gallic airs that are in three. Um, when you're trying to sort of push the music forward without being too aggressive rhythmically, I think that Pitts is a really nice approach to that. And having, being able to arpeggiate through your chords is, is yeah, is really great in that case. Like, so for example, let's see, there's this melody, this. G major, right? So, um, yeah, arpeggiating through the chords, and you could just do it in reposition. It doesn't have to be fancy. 
something like yep. that. So you're using, yeah, it, it, they are arpeggios, um, and you're, you're also using little sort of bridges between chords um, so that you can kind of walk between them in a smooth right. way. And, and yeah, and those arpeggios do open up the possibility of playing the three-note chords so you get more a full harmonic picture of, of what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Very cool. I'm curious uh, how, what you thought of Juilliard when you were there. <laughs> can we just talk, can we just talk yeah. Juilliard for a quick second? Uh, yeah. Because were you, I, I don't know did, if you felt like I did, like um, after a little bit, I started to really feel a little bit like an outsider there because I just wasn't going to go the normal route. You know, I sort of went there thinking I would and- oh, yeah kind of, um, you know, started realizing that maybe this wasn't exactly, you know, in my case, I just went, you know, there, I had this sort of moment of epiphany where I, I opened the, there was, used to be, now this is back in the dark ages, a thing called the <laughs> Schwann Catalog, which was, you know, a, a little small phone book thing of all the recordings in print that you could go wow. to like Sam Goody and buy LPs, you know. So just oh, that, yeah. so you'd open it up to like, tea and look at Tchaikovsky and it would have, you know, the fifth, you know, symphony and all these recordings. And then would, the violin concerto and there were like three pages of recordings. This is back in the 70s uh, <laughs> of recordings of the Tchaikovsky violin concerto. And I was, it's just, I, I don't know, I was looking for like David Oistrakh's recording, whatever. Mm. I'm looking through it and I just, I just like slammed it shut and I went like, who the hell needs another recording? <laughs> like, what am I doing here? You know? Um, mm. And in my case, you know, I just went like, you know, I wanted to compose. I, I was always writing music. I was like, composers always wrote in their own idiom that of their time, which for me was rock and roll. I'm like, this is totally <laughs> something different and maybe not for me, not what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> so I'm just curious, you know, what, what your Juilliard experience was. Yeah, well, um, it's really, I would love to hear more about uh, your your journey, but maybe you have to do your own podcast about yourself sometime. <laughs> exactly. uh, um, but yeah, no, I kind of had the opposite thing. Like I, I had already been to fiddle camp for many years at that point, and I kind of knew that, like, um, that's what I said about violin mean, before being like sort of a life discovery for so many people in the fiddle scene. Like uh, I can, you know, people of my generation, like me and my sister and Hanukkah Castle and Lisa Schneckenberger and Laura Cortese and Jeremy Kittle and all of these people. We, we grew up at the Hargraves, um, the Claridges. We all grew up yep. at this camp together. Yep. And um, and it was, you know, um, a way for us all to, to kind of find our own voice. Um, and, and that's so I found my voice at Fiddle Camp and I knew from before I went to Juilliard ah. that I didn't, did not want to play classical music. Oh, interesting. <laughs> but you went anyway. I did because I, you know, there wasn't a lot of uh, other opportunities. There was Berkeley and, and I, I could have gone to Berkeley and I kind of still regret to this day some a little bit that I didn't um, because I feel like, you know, from an improvisational uh, perspective, I would have been a lot better improviser had I had I started doing that from a younger age. Um, but um, no, I felt like I still had a lot to learn in, in terms of the great classics of the cello repertoire. And I just wanted to get yeah. as good as possible on my instrument, um, just to have the technique and, and the foundation um, to, to be able to play whatever music I wanted to. And I, and I, um, I guess I came relatively late to, to, to the cello. I, I started when I was nine. And um, there were just like a lot of the classic cello concertos and stuff that I hadn't played yet when I finished high school. So, um, so I wanted to, I wanted to do that. And I had had a couple of, um, you know, I, I did a couple of these like college trips, kind of visiting schools and stuff. And so I, I went to New York and um, I knew of Eric Friedlander um, just from, you know, not the fiddle scene because he's not in the fiddle scene, but, you know, just the, the alternative cello world. And I, I reached out to him or, or my mom did, I can't remember, and, uh, and had a, a couple of lessons with him. And he is the guy who actually... Um, recommended my teacher at Juilliard, Fred Sherry, um, as this guy who plays a lot of contemporary music, um, you know, has a very uh, tight relationship with a lot of living composers um, and, and is a very open-minded guy. And that was my main reason for choosing him as a teacher. Like I had had a horrible experience in high school with my cello, classical cello teacher, just 
you know, firing me for, for playing fiddle music and, you know, worrying it was ruining my yeah. technique. I'm sure yeah. you've heard the story millions of times. But anyway, um, so I wanted somebody who was open-minded. So Eric uh, recommended Fred Sherry to me and he, I, I had a trial lesson with him as well. And he like stuck on some Romanian panpipe music for me that was in nice. this really weird time signature. And I was like, okay, I, I like this guy. Uh, that's <laughs> this awesome. Is gonna work. <laughs> that's awesome. That's some of my favorite stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so I had a great relationship with him. I mean, he didn't show a ton of interest in like what I was doing outside of, of um, classical music, but but we did have a great time together, and I learned a lot from him. Um, I was already touring with Alistair when I started at Juilliard, so wow. I kind of had I had this like other life. I had a, I was leading a double life while I was there. Interesting. Um, and I started touring with Mark while I was there as well, and um, uh, I was still you know seeing my fiddle camp friends every summer and um and going to irish sessions on on school nights <laughs> in new york wow. yeah it's yeah, got great irish uh pubs there that have great sessions um happening so i was and i i tried to start a a session a celtic session at, at juilliard um you know kind of surreptitiously <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh I would be like sitting in orchestra rehearsals and on breaks and like playing tunes or teaching tunes to, to the people around me. And, and, uh, you know, I was trying to make little inroads in there, but, um, I didn't get much traction from the teachers or, um, from the fellow students. Yes. were interested in, in what I was doing, but, um, yeah, it's a miracle that I graduated (laughs) because I, I, I missed a lot of school while I was touring and, um, you know, uh, a lot of the, Teachers didn't look too too well on that, but um, I, I I did have a wonderful experience there. I made great friends. I loved playing chamber music. Um, I kind of you know would go into the orchestra office at the beginning of every semester and tell them, look, I can play this concert and this concert and this concert. I was like tried to arrange it around my tour schedule. Wow. Um, I could have done without the orchestra stuff, but uh, <laughs> I, I loved I loved working with Fred. I loved uh, playing chamber music with um, with my friends, and I, I feel like I did become a better musician while I was there, and you know, better listener and matching tone, and you know, um, things that I big yeah. bigger concepts that I still use today, and just being able to get around the instrument, like to sure. play all these fast Celtic melodies, um, having that classical technique is super useful for yes. that. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I mean, holy cow, you know, playing fiddle tunes on the cello is not, uh, you know, something anybody should take for granted. Um, there's just a whole lot more shifting that goes on <laughs> with a cello than fiddle players do the whole thing in one spot and, you know. Uh, so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's very interesting that, you know, the Celtic world is such, uh, from the, the social perspective of, you, you alluded to earlier with the Valley of the Moon, um, you know, uh, summers there, and how it's such a tight community. Um, mm. And I think it's so wonderful that you were able to bring that with you, sort of, to, to Juilliard, to have that going on at the same time and in your past. Um, because for me, it was very different. I felt that socially mm. Juilliard was such an isolating place at that time. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if there was a dorm when you went there, but, um, yeah. yeah, when I was there, there mm. was, there was no dorm. So people were just scattered throughout the city, wow. somewhere in Queens, yeah. somewhere in Westchester County, you know, people were all over the place. It was sort of a half of a, like a commuting kind of school and people ran right. in and ran out and, um, and, you know, th- that combined with the just generally um, pretty unfriendly um, competitiveness <laughs> that was yeah. that was there in the classical world, you know, mm. um, you know, it's probably really helpful for you to go in there going, I don't want to, you know, go the competition route. I don't want to do, do the, you know, audition route. I'm just here to work on my playing uh, rather than, you know, I kind of. Uh, went there, you know, wanting to be the next Yasha Heifetz, and <laughs> so were the other 500 violinists who were there, you know, including, yeah. and my, uh, when I was there, it was like, you know, Bobby McDuffie, Jimmy Lind, um, Nigel Kennedy, um, oh, Nadia Solano Sarnberg, <laughs> you know, all of those folks were in my class, so it was quite an intimidating 
uh, <laughs> non-social place. So that may have had something to do with my whole exit from that world, from that classical world. But uh, yeah. just kind of curious, curious to hear how different that experience was for you. Yeah, I mean, no, I think a lot of those things you're saying ring true still, even though despite having the dorm, there's there's not really a common area where where people hang out and yeah. a lot of people are, are are still commuting in and um and I, I felt very lucky to have this fiddle scene you know so that i could just sort of float above that whole yeah backstabbing comp- competition kind yeah. of thing and, and yeah. I, I i didn't really encounter it because i wasn't looking for it actually yeah. so um so I, I i was very you know blissfully sort of unaware of all of, all of that going on yeah. ar- around me um yeah so i I had a great experience there, um, cool. despite it not really ha- having anything to do with what I do now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, I, I'm sure it uh, gave you a lot of tools that you take mm-hmm. with you. You know, all of that, yeah. all of that good classical stuff. Because you know, as much as I um, talk about all this progressive, non-classical string playing that this is this show is focused on, I do like to mention at least once in every show that. Classical music was my first love, and I play Bach almost every day uh, and love it no less, even though I've sort of dedicated my life towards something quite different. But Amen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I sh- uh, should also mention that the all of the pedagogy there, uh, I think, has really helped me as a teacher, and uh, I imagine has done the same for you, uh, you do a lot of teaching at uh, through String Masters, as I do, which is a an online uh, teaching portal, um, a great resource. So people should uh, look for you there on String Masters, mm-hmm. and you've got courses out. I was actually just last night looking at your uh, the yeah homespun tapes. I did that uh, maybe ten years ago now. Oh with my Darryl. goodness! Yeah, with Daryl and with Daryl and, and Alistair. Yeah, and ah. I was uh, looking at that last night. That's a wonderful. Resource resource for anybody who wants to really dig into the 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 nitty-gritty of the bowings for these different grooves and six eights and nine eights and all of this kind of stuff and hornpipes and uh i've uh just found your your teaching approach very straightforward and and uh easy to digest and to to uh apply uh, and you've also got a new course, I think, on the Folk Music Academy. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, they're uh, they're a great site. I um, got super into um, actually taking some of their courses um, in the early parts of the pandemic because we had all this time on our hands all of a sudden, and so I started uh, using that as a tune learning resource because I, I'm super into Scandinavian music, um, even though I've kind of grew, grown up playing Celtic music. Um, I, I have my second love, thanks to Daryl Langer, who yes. introduced the lot of, of us, yeah. um, of my, my generation, to Vesson yep. uh, as, t- as teenagers. Um, so yeah, uh, I, they're mostly Scandinavian musicians on there, but they're kind of expanding their, their teaching base a little bit. So, um, And I'm the only cellist on there so far. Oh, wow. Oh, and, very uh, cool. Um, yeah. Very cool. So, now, um, did you, you already were, were demonstrating some things, um, wanted to give you a, a space if there was anything else you wanted to sort of demonstrate or show about, uh, you know, to make any point about rhythm playing that we haven't discussed. Yeah, so if I were in a reel, for example, um, I could do something like this, which was going to show, you know, where the bass move, motion is going, but also giving you a larger picture of, of the rest of the chord and providing sort of rhythmic impetus between those those chords too. So, for example, um, let me think of a tune, actually, because it's kind of hard. I mean, I, I, I can come up with a groove without a tune, but usually it's easier for me to relate it back to a, a fiddle tune. Sure. So, like, just a super simple reel in D, for example, like... simple so um it gives you more freedom i think as the accompanist to to sort of um go a little bit more crazy and let the melody be the thing that's like kind of calm and staying uh, relatively in the same space and and you can have more kind of chordal rhythmic action underneath that um Awesome. Um, and it's really super 
simple chords, just one, four, five, but so much fun to, to, to experiment with, um, you know, different registers, different parts of the instrument. Um, and what makes it so much fun to listen to and just, just so wonderful is your sense of time. Like your, your gift of, of groove. You know, there's there's not many other ways to explain it, but um, you know when you're playing that, there is such, uh, from my perspective, from from like you know what I point out to my students uh, to listen to in people like you, because the best way to learn stuff is just to listen really carefully to people who do this really well. Uh, and what I would point out to my listeners here is. Listen to all of the subdivisions. Yeah. Uh, when and I'll I'll probably right here replay a little chunk of that so they can re-listen to that. There, there are these uh, very lightly implied subdivisions. There are accents that cleanly pop out and then disappear back into this um, more ghosted uh, subdivisions. Uh, and, and while you're doing that, there's a backbeat occasionally that gets chopped. There's a bass note that clearly gets articulated. Um, if you don't mind, just demonstrating that once more. And if you could yeah. slow it down just a little bit. I know it's hard sure, to do. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> no, I'll try. I'll try. And I'll try to remember what I played. But um, no, I, I think, you know, there are... And this is really interesting to me, you know, trying to notate this stuff, especially since uh, Casey has sort yes. of standardized the notation for it. I, I agonized for, for years, um, like trying to, we, we transcribed our, our first two albums, or I, I transcribed them, and trying to figure out how to write out my part was just, yeah. you know, so took away hours of my life trying to figure out how to notate all these little things yes. because there's so many levels of intricacy yes. going on there and, you know, where the accents are, the bow amount of bow pressure you're using, um, whether it's something as a hard chop or a soft chop, you know, um, how to notate those, how to notate the ghost notes, and you know, yeah. it, it would just it would be a black page. Exactly. If you put in all of this stuff. Exactly. So. It's unnotatable. There's so much detail that is the richness yeah. of this tapestry. It's like trying to define every thread of a fabric. Exactly. But I think the cello lends itself really well to doing this chopping thing because, uh, and being able to really get all of the parts um, going on because you do have that strong bass, which, you know, on a fiddle is hard to get. Yes. Um, and because you have this, you know, heavier bow, thicker strings, your, your chop sound has a lot of meat to it um, on a cello, which I, I think is great. Um, yeah, and, and a lot of what I do is really based on Stromboy. You know, it's it's got to be this constant back and forth thing, or you don't have that yeah. groove. That yeah. the sense of consistency goes away um, uh, the second you take out these little subdivisions. They can be teeny, teeny, teeny. Yeah, they can almost be, there. be more thought than play. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, and that's uh, that's one of the hardest things to teach. I think is to just get people doing that and get it to feel natural. Um, but it's the key. To yeah, everything. you know what I what I have found increasingly uh, just in the last year or two that I keep uh, has become a refrain is you and it's the exact opposite of what my teachers taught me at Juilliard is use less bow. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right? because you're not you're not trying to produce a big sound. You're trying to um, be super rhythmically stable, and and you're not going to do that by exactly. This is yeah. something I, I learned from Daryl many years ago. I didn't yeah. realize I learned it until years later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's again that's part of what makes it challenging to do this on the cello is because we have the thicker strings. Yeah. articulation is so important. Getting that string activated. Um, so that, you know, you're really hearing the attack of the yes. note and you're also getting the left hand engaged to stop that sound yes. so that your, your, your exit and entry points are very clear. Um, and you know, uh, I forgot why I was starting to talk about this, but, um, 
yeah, I think I think it's just really important to think about um, articulation on the cello because uh, and and using small bows. I, th I guess that's probably why. Yeah, just getting the sound that I have come to develop over these years is so much about that because if you're lacking that clarity yeah. when you're playing on the lower strings, it's just gonna, you know it's not gonna have the same attack. So I'm really all about getting the string ringing and then getting out of the way. Um, so a lot of what I'm doing is off the string, actually. Yeah. And, then and also <laughs> this left hand muting thing, which they sure as hell did not teach you at Juilliard. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, had, I think I had to figure that out on my own. I don't know if anybody ever told me how to do it. Um, but yeah, it, it makes such a difference. So yeah, I'm just trying to like hit the bass note basically wherever there's a chord change. Um, and that's, again, where I really want to like activate the note and then get out of the way so it keeps ringing until I don't want it to be heard anymore. Um, and then kind of hitting the open uh, strings on the top of that chord is easy to do in, in D major on the cello. But um, yeah, that's another feature of Celtic music is there's so many sort of like droney sounds that you're going for, you know, dad, gad, guitar. It's all about like sort of leaving these open strings ringing um, and the bagpipe drones. There's so much droniness in the music that I, I, I try to use open, open voicings whenever I can. Um, so that's kind of bass note and then sort of middle voice and then the backbeat. I use a lot of halftime stuff um, for Celtic music because the melody itself is so notey. It's all about eighth notes or sixteenth right. notes, depending on how you're notating it. But um, and the pretty much constant stream of eighth notes. So so you're um, you know you need you need something to ground it um, and you need to give a little space too. So because the melody doesn't have any spaces. Um, so uh, that's why I, I find that those halftime grooves work well for, for Celtic music. So. so I, I guess I'm doing yeah, bass note and then kind of middle voice and then chopping on three. Um, and then a little, a lot of up bows, syncopated up bows, um, just to get a, a couple yeah. of those little, sort of more unexpected yes. accents um, that can kind of provoke the melody um, rather than just having that. Sort of in bluegrass and old time music, you get more of those kind of grooves that don't have as much syncopation in them. But Celtic music, we, we like our syncopation. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I noticed that in your uh, on the homespun course, you were talked about the the offbeats, uh, the unaccented uh, notes, and I stress that a lot in in my teaching. That that's where uh, kind of so much of the energy comes from. It's on the totally. the second and fourth of the sixteenth notes that got, yeah. got, got, got you know the those subdivisions that define the the faster subdivision rather than you know if you're just hitting the strong beats. Um, totally. Very cool. Thanks for breaking that down for us. That's incredibly uh, not only beautiful but useful. I think for a, <laughs> for a lot of us. Cool. Very Thanks. cool. Very cool, Natalie. And now. I think we're drawing to the last segment of the show, the dreaded Not My Gig <laughs> segment. So I hope you feel like playing a little round of this. And um, I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> be afraid. Be very afraid. Because Natalie Haas, who has a, a longtime teacher at the Valley of the Moon Fiddle School, I'm going to ask you some stuff about the movie Valley of the Sun. Oh, I never even heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> Which I had neither, but I'm very glad that I discovered it. And to that end, before I get into any of the trivia detail, which if you know any of, if you get any of these right, I will be amazed. Um, <laughs> but I am first going to make you watch this little like three minute trailer that I discovered. Oh, amazing. Okay. <laughs> so uh, here you go. I'm going to... Yes. Awesome. <laughs> 
<laughs> wow. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's a lot of shooting there at the end. <laughs> Did not age well in the uh, political correctness. <laughs> no. <laughs> For sure not. We've come a long way. <laughs> All right. Well, I just realized that I gave away one of the answers to one of my questions. Oh, so. well, maybe I wasn't paying that close attention. You should still ask it. All right. Well, at least you'll get, you'll get one right for sure. Okay. I think you're going to get more than one right, actually. Okay. Here we go. You ready? Ready. Okay. <laughs> Valley of the Sun is an American Western released in 1942. Right? What? is the running time of this film. Is it A, 120 minutes, B, 90 minutes, or C, 78 minutes? I'm gonna go with C because I'm guessing they didn't have that much tape at that point in time. You are absolutely right. <laughs> Woohoo! Woo. All right, one for one. All right. The movie is based on the 1940s serial story, Valley of the Sun, which ran in which monthly periodical? Was it A, Harper's, B, The New Yorker, or C, The Saturday Evening Post? I'm going to go with C. You are I right. Really? Yes. Very <laughs> just, good. Just because that's the only one I hadn't heard of. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it just seems like it, uh, it maybe wasn't a classy enough story for the New Yorker. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you were right. Two for two. Excellent. <laughs> All right. And here's your final question. Valley of the Sun is a nickname for which... American city? Oof. Is it A, Miami, <laughs> B, Seattle, in which case it, <laughs> would, be, it would be sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of irony, Seattle irony going on. Or C, Phoenix, Arizona. I'm going to go with C again. You got it. I didn't realize yeah. they all ended up being C's. <laughs> Wow. Three okay. for three. Nice oh. job. And I thought I was going to stump you. <laughs> well, um, I'm really glad they were multiple choice questions. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Natalie, thanks so much for taking this time from your late afternoon, my early morning day <laughs> here and uh, to hang out in the Zoom lounge here at the Greater Groove. And appreciate all of the wonderful playing that you do and inspiration, the inspiration that you are for so many cellists out there. Thank you, Tracy. It's been an honor. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you want to stay in touch, please join the For the Greater Groove Facebook group. See ya. Groove on. <laughs>